following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. I invite you to open up God's Word this morning and turn with me to the third chapter of this precious letter that we know and treasure as Second Peter. Second Peter, chapter 3. I'd like to begin by reading in your hearing verses 11 to 18 of chapter 3 this morning. And so, as always, it's with a grateful heart and a profound sense of privilege and honor that I invite you into the same privilege of hearing and heeding the life-imparting, faith-sustaining, and hope-arousing words of the triune God. The prophet Jeremiah said many years ago to God, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your word became to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. That's especially true of these final verses in Peter's second letter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. The Apostle Peter writes, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you concerning the wisdom given to him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, Knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grace Community Church, these are the words of the living God. Thanks be to God. Waiting has been defined as the action of staying where one is or delaying action until a particular time or until something else happens. It's something that we do every day. Wait. 
Every day of our lives, we find ourselves waiting. We wait for the morning alarm clock to go off. We wait for the hot water to turn on before we step into the shower. We wait for the water to boil before making coffee or tea. We wait for the engines in our vehicles to warm up before we leave the house. The reality of waiting is integrated into every facet of human existence. We wait for small things and we wait for big things, massive things, heavy things, weighty things. We go from waiting for our cell phones to charge to waiting for that phone call from the doctor with the results from the biopsy. Parents wait for babies to be born. Singles wait for that right one for marriage. And when we lose our spouses in old age, we wait in hopes of seeing them again in a better life. We plant seeds and we wait for them to sprout. We wait for job interviews and then for the results of those interviews. In the heat of the summer, we wait for the fall and cool weather and pumpkin cream cold brews from Starbucks like myself. And, and just when we're tired of cold weather and colorless landscapes, we wait for spring weather, green grass and summer flowers. Some waiting is flat out annoying and some waiting is straight up painful. And yet waiting is an absolutely inescapable reality for those of us who are bound by time. People say things like, the waiting is driving me crazy. And they say things like, I wish there was something more I could do, but all I can do is wait. I recently read the story of Donald and Vicki James, whose son was broadsided by a drunk driver a few years ago. When they got the message and they showed up at the hospital, they found their son unconscious and unresponsive. And Vicky said, Every second of not knowing whether he would make it was like a year. Some of you have experienced that kind of waiting. The type of waiting that is difficult. The type of waiting surrounding hard situations. We hate it. We find it difficult. And I think that's because of three reasons. First, we, we hate waiting in difficult situations because, number one... There's nothing we can do to help or change the situation. Secondly, we hate waiting in difficult situations because we don't know what the outcome will be. Oftentimes, waiting like this comes clothed with uncertainty, and we don't like it. And thirdly, I think another reason we hate this kind of waiting surrounding difficult situations is because we want things to happen according to our timetable. Waiting calls our attention to our lack of patience, and it reminds us that we are not in control, and we don't like that. Well, as we turn this morning to these final eight verses in Second Peter, the apostle refers to the reality of waiting three times, and in the span of three verses, verses 12, 13, and 14. Look at verse 12 with me. Peter says we ought to be waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Verse 13 says, according to God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. And then in verse 14, he says again, 
Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Wait, wait, and continue to wait. Unfortunately, because we live in a fallen world, we often view waiting in a bad light. But in the Bible, waiting is to be seen in a good light. You see, in the Bible, the reality of waiting, the motif of waiting on God, encompasses a wide range of meanings, and it's seen in a strongly positive light. Let me give you some examples. Number one, we're called to wait on God with submission and with patience and resignation and dependence and contentment when we find ourselves in less than ideal circumstances. For example, David in Psalm 27 finds himself surrounded by enemies and false witnesses who had arisen against him, and yet he resolves to wait for the Lord to be strong and to take courage. Secondly, waiting on God in the Bible is what we're called to do when it comes to revenge and vengeance. Proverbs 20, verse 22 says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for Yahweh, and he will deliver you. Thirdly, waiting on God is what we're called to do when we desperately need him to act. David, again, in Psalm 37 says, Commit your way to Yahweh. Trust in him, and he will act. And he goes on to say, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fourthly, the Bible uses the terminology of waiting on God as virtually synonymous with the whole life of faith or being God-fearing. In Psalm 37, verse 34, to wait for the Lord is to keep his way. In Lamentations 3.25, to wait for the Lord is to seek the Lord. But there's a fifth way in which the biblical authors use the terminology of waiting for the Lord. And it has to do with waiting for God in an eschatological sense. In other words, waiting for him to finish his work of redemption and salvation. When God saved us, We were saved in the hope that one day our very bodies would be redeemed. He saved us and he brought us into a life of waiting for the great consummation of all things. When his son returns in glory to make all things new, he saved you to be a waiter, to wait for him, to finish the grand work that he began. In Romans 8, Paul said that as believers, we groan along with all of creation as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In 1 Corinthians 1.7, Paul describes the church as those who are waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, that the church is waiting for God's Son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. Titus chapter 2, verse 13 says that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jude 21 describes us as waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. 
In Philippians 3.20, Paul reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. As we share the gospel and call others to repent and to believe and to trust in God's risen King, we are calling them into a life of waiting for the Lord Jesus, who, according to Hebrews 9.28, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but listen, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Welcome to a life of waiting. And it's to this glorious reality that Peter directs our attention to here at the very end of his letter. The cry of the Old Testament saints and the cry of the New Covenant Church then and now is one and the same. O Lord, how long? How long until you come? How long until you make all things new? How long until sin and death are realities of the past? How long until we can finally worship you without ever being tempted to turn aside again to the fleeting pleasures of sin? How long until the knowledge of your glory covers every square inch of this earth as the waters cover the sea? How long, O Lord? That's the cry of the people of God, then and now. And as we sojourn through the dry wilderness of this world, God has given us his word to be water to quench our thirst to be bread to satisfy our hunger, to be light to guide us in darkness, to be a sword to be a weapon of defense. But he's also given us his word to be a telescope through which we see the coming new creation from afar. And in seeing it, our hope is stirred up. And when our hope is stirred up, we begin to live pure lives because we begin to anticipate his coming. Well, as we come this morning to the end of Peter's second letter, Peter gives us final instructions for what we're to do and how we're to live while we wait in hopeful anticipation of the new creation. He calls our attention to five realities that we are to consider and take to heart as we groan with eager longing for the day of our redemption. First, in verses 11 through 12, he underscores for us the kind of people we ought to be known as. The kind of people we ought to be known as. Look at the text with me. Verses 11 through 12. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So he links this section to the last section where he talked about the destruction of the old order, the old universe, in order to usher in the new order, the new heavens and the new earth. And he begins by saying, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, referring to the present order of creation. The word there for dissolved means loosed. It means to be released. The word literally means to be untied. When John the Baptist preached 
He said, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. That's the same word that Peter uses here to describe the destruction, the dissolving, the untying, the unraveling, the releasing, the loosing of the universe. Can you imagine? You remember that Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians chapter 1 says that in him all things hold together. So at his command one day, everything will be loosed. And it's interesting based upon the way that our, our cells and our atoms are made up. The way all things are made up, they're tied, bound together. Can you imagine the loosening of everything and everything dissolving? That's what lies in store for the present order. Everything will be loosened. Everything will be dissolved. Reminds you of language that you find in Revelation regarding everything being rolled up. Revelation 6.14, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Revelation 20 verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Now listen to this. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. When he appears in judgment, everything will be dissolved. Everything will flee from his presence. Except for those standing before him in judgment. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The world is passing away, not only the physical world, but also the wickedness of this world. It's all going to pass away going to be a thing of the past we're not going to witness any school shootings in the new creation nothing of that nothing knowing that paul says that eschatology affects your ethics eschatology is tied to how you live how you believe the world will end has a direct impact on how you live today if we're told that all things will pass away Everything will be loosened and dissolved into nothingness. It tells us that we are not to attach ourselves too tightly, too closely to this present world or its order. You're to have treasures, yes, but you're to store those treasures in heaven. You're to enjoy this world, yes, but you're, to not, you're not to hold on to it too, too tightly. So do not love the world, as John says. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, he says, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. It's passing away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever one of the reasons you come to church is to get this divine perspective, this eternal perspective. The things that you've been tempted with the last six, seven days until, uh, since we've met, those things are passing away. 
But if you do the will of God, you will abide forever. Now, notice it sounds like a question here. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? And while it sounds like a question, it's actually a bold statement on Peter's part. He's saying something to the effect of how astonishingly excellent you ought to be. How astonishingly excellent you ought to be in the way you live. In holiness, referring to outward consecration of the life. Holiness refers to dedication. It refers to consecration. It means that you are set apart for a purpose. And your eyes are for this purpose. Your, your hands are given to you to be set apart for God. Your voice is given to you to be consecrated, holy, set apart for God and His purposes. Your feet that He's given you are feet that He's given you to take good news to those who need to hear the good news. God saved you for the purpose of making you holy, set apart, not for your own self, not for your own pleasures, and certainly not for this world. He saved you to make you a holy person, an other person, a a, a person of another kind, a person that's dedicated to him and following him and loving him and being satisfied by his glory. That's why he saved you. So this word holiness refers to the outward consecration, separation of the life. Now, Peter's used this word before in 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15 and 16, rather. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. He doesn't just say holiness, but he says the type of people we ought to be known as is godly people. Notice, godliness. Holiness refers here to the outward consecration of the life. Godliness refers to as the inward disposition or attitude of the heart. The inward disposition or attitude of the heart. Both are needed. God doesn't just care about who you are outwardly, He wants your outward appearance to match your inward reality, who you are within. It's when we get these things mixed up that we become either, we become hypocritical. We we clean the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup is dirty and filthy. It's so easy to give way to hypocrisy. It's so easy to put on a show or put on a, Mask in order to be seen by others the way you want them to see you. But all the while, God knows the heart. He knows what you truly love. He knows what you truly hate. He knows what you loathe, and He knows what you treasure. We're to be godly within so that we can be holy without. This is not the first time He's mentioned Eusebia. He uses it in the plural here. Godliness. First Peter 1 3, you remember that Peter told us there that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to and by his own glory and excellence. In other words, godliness is not just possible, it's to be expected of you because he's given to you everything you need to be godly to be who you are 
before him in a pleasing way within. That's why he says in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1 that you should be supplementing your steadfastness with godliness. Now, this is something that doesn't come naturally, folks. And this is a point where a lot of Christians get tripped up is they think that they should just naturally be godly. If I don't do anything, this is what's going to be the natural outcome of my life is godliness. Friends, 1 Timothy 4.7 says that you have to train yourself for godliness. So many people lose their assurance or have their assurance rocked because godliness isn't the natural outflow and overflow of their heart, their lives. Now, don't get me wrong. You've been regenerated if you're in Christ. You've been born again, born from above. You're a new person, a new creation, a new creature. Yes, but you're a new creature living in the flesh still. You have this carcass of death that you have to haul around until your very last day. And this carcass still desires corrupt things, wicked things, abominable things. And so you have to train yourself for godliness. You have to take intentional steps to be godly within. You have to cultivate godliness in your life. It's not just going to happen naturally. There's a lot of people that have this let go and let God mentality in the church today. Oh, just let go and let God. Let Jesus take the wheel. That's not how it happens. You are called to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You are called to put on the whole armor of God. You are called to set your minds on things above and not on things of this earth. You are called to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It doesn't come naturally. It comes with hard work. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And notice what he goes on to say next. Waiting for the coming of the day of God. The word waiting there speaks of eager expectation. It's the same word used in Luke 3.15 as the people were in expectation. And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John the Baptist, whether he might be the Christ. Same word that's used there. They were, they were in, in eager expectation of the Messiah. They're hearing rumors. They're hearing about signs and wonders. And, and what happens is they, they're, they're eagerly expecting the Messiah. That's the same word used here. It also means to be looking for something. In fact, it's translated as the word suspense. In Acts 27, verse 33, as the day was about to dawn, Paul urged the people all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense without food. Waiting for the coming of the day of God. Looking for the coming of the day of God. Waiting in suspense for the coming of the day of God. Now, we hear the word suspense, and it kind of puts a negative light into the mixture, right? Because we we tend to think of suspense as not knowing what will happen. Suspense is defined as a state of a state or feeling of excited or anxious uncertainty about what may happen. But biblical suspense is a state of excitement about what will happen. <laughs> There's no may about it. We know what will happen. And so Paul uh, Peter is saying what sort of people you ought to be in holiness, in godliness, in eager anticipation, looking for 
the coming of the day of God. But he uses a fourth word here. He says, you also should be hastening the coming of the day of God. And this has thrown many people into confusion. You know what the word hastening means. To hurry something along. To speed something up. If you tell me you're on your way to my house later and you're going slow, I might say something like, hasten things up, let's go. Chop, chop, let's go. Bring it, let's go. Hastening, right? Peter says here that we're to be holy, godly, expectant or hopeful. And fourthly, we're to hasten the coming of the day of God. Now, some people have tried to get around the, um, the discomfort of this verse by saying things like, oh, it just means that you're to be eagerly waiting for the Lord. Well, he already said that in this word, looking for or expecting in eager suspense. He already used that. It means to hurry it up. Now, again, here we, we begin to go into all, in our minds, we go, we go into all those passages highlighting and underscoring the sovereignty of God. God has appointed the day and the hour, and no man knows the day or the hour of the coming of Christ, right? And we'll say things like, hey, the coming of Christ is fixed, it's certain, it's been decreed and determined from before the foundation of the world. God knows what time his son will come forth from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire to inflict vengeance on his enemies and to bring relief to his people. God knows that. He's not a God who learns anything, who changes his mind. He decrees, he determines, he plans, he is sovereign. Amen to all of that. Yes. But he plans the end and he plans the means to the end as well. He doesn't just decree that you would be saved. He doesn't just plan that you would be saved one day. He also decrees the means by which you will be brought to salvation. He didn't just decree you to hear the shepherd's voice and to leave the the pastures of sin and to come into the fold of Christ. Yes, he decreed that. He determined that. He predestined that. But he also predestined the messenger that would come along and tell you the gospel He also decreed that Bible that would be sitting on your dresser that you would open up one day and read and hear the shepherd's voice. He decreed everything, even in your lost state. God determined long before you were even born, not only that you'd hear the gospel, but how you'd hear the gospel. And in the same way, God not only decreed when his son would return, but he decreed all the things that would lead to his return. In other words, the preaching of the gospel by the church of the Lamb. What we're saying here is that the church hastens the coming of the day of God as she remains obedient to the Great Commission. You remember that Jesus said in Matthew 24 that every that before the end comes, the gospel had to be proclaimed in the whole creation. You see, God knows the very, very, very last elect sinner who will hear the gospel. And it very well could be you to share that message with that last person. I don't know. But God knows. And so from our perspective, we hasten the coming day by our obedience to the Great Commission. By praying, your kingdom come. You see, he, God 
through Christ, instructed us to pray that his kingdom would come. And it's in conjunction with those prayers and those labors that God brings his kingdom to the earth. It's God who will bring the end. Yes, he knows when, but from our perspective, we're hurrying it up by our obedience to go and make and mark and mature disciples for the Lord Jesus. From his perspective, we're not hastening anything. It's exactly on schedule. From the eternal perspective, it doesn't hasten because there's no time there. God's not bound by time. Heaven's not bound by time. But from an earthly perspective, we are hastening the coming day of God as we go out and share the gospel in hopes that as more and more here and believe that we are one day closer to the Lord coming back for his people. And in that sense, we hasten the day. Even though from God's perspective, all is according to the same schedule that it always has been from before the creation of the world. So Peter points out in verses 11 and 12, the kind of people we ought to be known as. Secondly, in verse 13, he underscores the kind of world we ought to be longing for. The kind of world we ought to be longing for. Look at verse 13 with me. Well, let me, let's finish off the rest in verse 12. He goes on and says, Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. So he ends where he starts off. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. What a sight that will be when the present order is just rolled up like a scroll, burned up and dissolved. That's what will happen in the coming of the day of God. Now, theologians have tried to separate the day of God from the day of the Lord the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all one day, friends. People say that the coming of the day of God refers to the very, 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 very end after the coming of Christ. But friends, Peter is talking about one perusia, one coming, one arrival. That's the kind of people we ought to be known as. He goes on, though, in verse 13 to talk about the kind of world we ought to be longing for. Look at the verse. But according to his promise, We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells according to his promise. So the day of the Lord, the day of God is not just a negative day wherein everything will be dissolved and burned up and loosed and untied and unraveled and disintegrated. It's not just about that. There's a positive side to all this, you see. And it's this, according to his promise. We are waiting for, there's a second mention of the word waiting, new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. Now he begins this by saying, but according to his promise, which presupposes that somewhere in the Bible this was predicted or prophesied or spoken of. And for that, I would point you back to Isaiah 65, verse 17. Isaiah 65, verse 17. Turn there with me. Isaiah is one of the major, major, major prophets in that his prophecy is so long. Isaiah 65, verse 17. 
Listen to where this was originally promised. God says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And that immediately evokes pictures in our minds of Revelation 21 when we see this heavenly Jerusalem, Jerusalem coming down from heaven out of God as a bride prepared for her bridegroom in indescribable splendor and glory that John is grasping, as it were, for pictures and, 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 and words to try to describe this. And he resorts to all sorts of precious jewels and it's wonderful. But that's where he gets this from. According to his promise from Isaiah 65, 17. Skip one chapter ahead, Isaiah 66. For as, verse 22, Isaiah 66, 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From the new moon, from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. You see, in that day when he creates all things new, the world will be full of people who finally, finally worship him as he ought to be worshipped. Without sin, without temptation, without distraction, the world will be covered with a people who worship him. But it's a new heaven. It's a new earth. Let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 3. According to his promise from Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The word new there refers to new in quality, a new type, something that we've never seen before. And this is what stirs up the eager longings in our hearts for the new heavens and the new earth because it's nothing like we've ever seen before. All we've known in this present world order is brokenness and division and sin and temptation and tribulation and hardship and difficulty, groaning with the rest of creation until this coming day. All we've known is pain, cancer, divorce, sin, transgression, rebellion, school shootings, corrupt governments. That's all we've known. But in the new order, everything will be new. So new that the former things, as Isaiah says, will not be remembered. That's how new this is. We know nothing of this because even if we get something new, we have something to compare it to. And then it wears off quickly. This whole thing of newness is so ridiculous to those of us who are parents. Your child asks for a new toy, and a week later, they can't even find it because they're playing with a box. The newness in this world wears off so quickly. Can you imagine in that day, 
in the new heavens and the new earth, the newness will be as new as it ever was. It will not get old. People say, I don't want to go to heaven. It's boring there. Oh, friends, can you imagine a newness that never wears off, that never disappoints, that never, never gives way to anything else? That's what he has in store for us. We will have new bodies. We will have new affections, refined affections, I should say. We will have new strength that we've never known before. A new ability to worship God that we've never known before. Because sin has always been there to spoil our worship on earth. Yes, thank God for a mediator and a high priest that consecrates and accepts our worship and makes it acceptable to the Father. But in that day, everything we do will be so pleasing to the Lord because it will not have any sin to taint it. Nothing. There will be no broken bodies to to have to deal with. Raising perfect hands, singing with perfect voices, new voices. Everything will be made new. No eye, no ear has heard this, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. According to his promise, Peter says, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. And notice the last phrase, in which righteousness dwells. The word dwells signifies an abiding reality. It's not going anywhere. Righteousness has made its home here. This is the home of righteousness and nothing else will ever, ever, ever enter this new world. Now, turn with me quickly to Revelation 21. I want you to see how this plays out here in John's language. Peter's language is new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I want you to hear it from John's perspective. Revelation chapter 21 Beginning in verse 1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, listen to this. Peter says this new earth, righteousness would dwell there. Listen to John's version of that. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, As for the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He goes on in verses 9 through 21 to describe this new city, but I want to pick it up in verse 22. 
You can read that later. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. He will bring into into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever, ever, ever enter into it, because it's a place where righteousness dwells. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. No curse, no sin, no unrighteousness, nothing corrupt will ever enter this new creation. Let's go back to Second Peter. That is the kind of world we ought to be longing for. A new world where righteousness reigns and dwells. Well, as we come now to verse 14, he also points out the kind of diligence we ought to be given to. The kind of diligence we ought to be given to. Look at verse 14 with me. Therefore, a strong word of summary here. Beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent. The word there means make every effort toward being found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Therefore, beloved, since you're longing for, anticipating, eagerly longing and awaiting the new creation, he gives this instruction, be vigilant. Again, this underscores the reality that there is work for us to do while we wait. This is not a passive waiting. This is a very active waiting, a busy waiting. As we said earlier, godliness, holiness, fruit in our lives does not come naturally. It comes with effort. It comes with work. It comes with toil, with, as Paul says, training ourselves. The Christian is to be marked by a life of diligence, diligently seeking the Lord, diligently giving yourself over to prayer, diligently, intentionally meditating upon his word, diligently seeking the Lord with all those who call upon him from a pure heart like yourself. Notice it says here that in that day, we're going to be found by him. This is strong language. This underscores the reality that no one, nothing will escape the Lord's presence upon his return. He is coming to find us. And not, it's it's not implying a negative Reality that we are hiding, like Adam was hiding in the garden, and that the Lord knew where he was, called him, and in a sense found him, or rather made it clear to Adam that he was found out. This doesn't imply that we're hiding. It just means that when he comes, everything will be brought to him. Now, we do find the reality of some people hiding on that last day. The Old Testament and even John in Revelation 6 describes people as hiding in the mountains and the rocks, pleading with 
the rocks and the mountains to hide them, to crush them, to fall on them, to hide them from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand, they are saying. But for us, we want to make sure that when he comes, he finds us, and he uses three words that should describe us when he comes and finds us. Number one, without spot. Now remember, this is contrary to the false teachers who were spots and blemishes in the church. So he's contrasting the believers here with the false teachers in chapter 2. Without spot and without blemish. Not defiled, in other words, by the things of this world. That's important. True religion, James says, is to keep yourself unstained from the world. Now there is, thank God, according to Zechariah 13.1, a fountain that God has opened up for us to cleanse ourselves from sin and uncleanness and transgression. This fountain is found at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ that is like an ever fresh spring for us to wash ourselves in. Therefore, if we are to be found by him without spot or blemish, doesn't imply that we are walking in a perfect manner. It just implies we're walking near the cross with the Lord Jesus fresh on our minds, his cross fresh on our hearts, his blood freshly washing over us as 1 John says, as we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And do you remember how, what John says happens in that same time? And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. As we walk in the light, in fellowship with God, we are walking, as it were, under this cleansing fountain of the blood of Christ so as to be spotless and without blemish before him. The truth is, you do get defiled in this world. The question is, what do you do when you find yourself defiled? Do you throw in the towel and say, well, I've already blown it. I'm just going to go deeper into my sin. Or do you say, oh, Lord, give me a contrite heart. Help me to hate this sin. And let me come back to the cross, the cleansing fountain of redeeming blood. You do get defiled by spots and blemishes. But there's a fountain for you. There's a cleansing fountain for you. The last word he describes is the word at peace. When he comes, he says, be diligent. Make every effort to make sure that you're spotless, to make sure that you are without blemish. And number three, to make sure that you are at peace. Now, this is interesting because I don't think this is a horizontal peace that he's describing. I don't think he's saying, make sure that you're at peace with everyone. Make sure you're at peace with your brothers and sisters. No, there's, there's other passages in the Bible that teach us that we should be found at peace with one another. That we should do everything we can, like Ephesians 4 says, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in the fellowship of the church. There's other passages to tell us that. What Peter is describing here is make sure you're at peace with him when he returns. Now, you might ask, and I will answer, how can a sinner be at peace with a holy God? Well, Kent read it in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by his blood, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The sinner is brought into a state of peace and reconciliation with the holy God where there is no more enmity on God's part when that sinner comes and by faith alone, no works, no trust in self, no self-reliance, no religious works to, to hold to, when a sinner comes with empty hands, naked in all their sin and shame and not covered up in supposed cloaks of their own righteousness. No, when they come and say, nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to your cross, I cling. You know what God does? He declares you righteous. He looks at you and he says, righteous in my sight. That's the beautiful reality of justification. But even after justification, we're still in need of peace, aren't we? Thank God that he sent his son to die for us, that we might be brought to peace with God. But even as we go through life, sometimes defiling ourselves, getting spots and blemishes on our white garments, and defiling our consciences, God has still given us a recipe for peace within Philippians 4 says this, rejoice in the Lord. This is how to have peace, by the way. As a believer, one, yes, you have objective peace with God that will never be affected. Rejoice in the Lord, always. Again, I would say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. I think I need to repeat that. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Not only has God made a way for you to have objective peace with him through the cross and by faith alone in Christ alone. But he's made a way for you to have inward peace as you walk this world on your way to the celestial city. And it's by coming to Christ continually. It's the peace of knowing that you are his, that he is yours. It's about It comes by not being anxious about anything, but by giving everything to the Lord in prayer, living close to him in prayer. Basically, what this text is saying is give yourself over to God in prayer and there will be peace to guard your soul, to guard your mind and to guard your heart. Do everything you can do to make sure that you're at peace with God. Confess all and every known sin. Make sure you're at peace with him. That is the kind of diligence we ought to be given to. Fourthly, as we move on in verses 15 through 16, he tells us the kind of thinking we ought to be armed with. The kind of thinking we ought to be armed with. Notice, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's the kind of thinking we ought to be armed with. The scoffers were thinking what? He's not going to come again. All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation until now. He says, the kind of thinking you're to be armed with is to to think in such a way that you know that as long as he delays, it just means that there are more people that need to be saved. Count, regard, in the Greek, let it be your opinion. 
Let, let this govern your thoughts. Count, regard, consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. Think of the patience of all the attributes he calls our attention to here. He calls our attention to the patience of God, the patience of Christ, rather. The patience of our Lord. Now, we know that God's sovereignty is involved in his delay. But he says, consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. This takes us back a few verses to verse 9, where we are told that God is patient toward you, the church, the elect, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We should worship Christ for his patience. We should worship God for his glorious patience. How long he waited for you in your lost, wicked, evil, God-hating state. How long he waited for you. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. We live in this tension, right? We want him to return. We want him to make all things new and come and bring everything to its final end. But we, we, we live in the tension of, but Lord, this person needs to hear your voice. My children need to all know you. My loved ones need to know you. My, my co-workers that I'm witnessing to on a weekly basis, they need to come to know you. And we find ourselves like Paul, eagerly longing for the salvation of his kinsmen, his people. We find ourselves that way. But we're to count the patience of our Lord as an opportunity for salvation. God is still bringing in, bringing in his elect that he's predestined and elected from the foundation of the world. More people are being saved and more of the saved are being sanctified. You see, this term salvation is not just referring to the lost getting saved, but it refers to also the believers doing everything they can do to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So while we wait, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Lord, I'm waiting for you, but I know that many more have yet to hear the gospel. And I know that in this time of waiting, I myself want to make sure that I am walking in the joy of your salvation. As Psalm 51 says, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. And notice the little detour at the end of verse 15 and through the end of verse 16. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, Paul apparently wrote to these same individuals wherever they were in Asia Minor, according to the wisdom given him, which is a reference to the fact that he was given wisdom by the Holy Spirit in order to write to the church. Verse 16, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. What matters? Things concerning salvation, the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ. Paul wrote this to you. I wrote this to you as Paul does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Now look at that next and last sentence in verse 16. There are some things in them, in Paul's letters, that are hard to understand. Amen to that. An inspired apostle, Peter, is acknowledging that there are certain things that Paul says that are hard to understand. 
So if you're wrestling with something in Paul, perhaps in 1 Corinthians 15, those 58 verses that I've tried to tackle the last two Easter Sundays, take heart that Peter could also look at Paul and say, you're hard to understand sometimes, brother. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Not impossible, but hard. He says, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. A couple things here. What do ignorant people do when they come across hard passages? What do unstable people do when they come across texts that are hard to understand? They twist them. And it doesn't say they twist them and there's no results. They twist them to their own destruction. Oh, friends. Just because we might have a hard time understanding certain parts of the Bible does not give us liberty to reword them, twist them to fit into our theological system, reshape them, take off the edges of them so they don't hit as hard, sand them down, remove the blunt edge. Friends, we are called to take the whole counsel of God, apply it to the whole life for the glory of God, trusting him that he will give us understanding how and when he sees fit to do so. Therefore, we are to pray like Psalm 119 verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Give me understanding that I may live and keep your word. I recently spoke with a new believer and they were having a hard time understanding something in in the, in the word and i said are you praying for understanding and they said no and i said well you know i encouraged the person scripture calls you to pray for understanding read the first chapter of ephesians paul is praying they have strength to comprehend with all the saints or is it chapter three one of those prayers he's he's praying for comprehension we need to pray for comprehension and understanding and trust that god will reveal his will to us according to his good pleasure. But in the meantime, that doesn't give us liberty to twist the scriptures. That doesn't give us liberty to distort the word of God. If you're having a hard time understanding human responsibility and divine sovereignty, don't twist the scriptures. Are men responsible? Will they give an account for their actual real sin before God? Yes, Does God elect certain sinners to believe the gospel and be saved? Yes. Don't twist the scriptures. Do we find that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life? Yes. And yet aren't we told in John 17, 2 and 3, that Jesus came to give eternal life only to those the Father gave him? Yes. Don't twist the scriptures just to fit into your own little noggin, your own little system. Pray for understanding. Seek out wisdom, counseling. Seek out understanding from qualified teachers, renowned teachers of God's word. But don't twist the scriptures. If you do, you will find yourself destroyed. That's how false teachers work, by the way. That's how cults gain a following is by twisting 
the scriptures, but it's to their own and the, their followers' own destruction. Second thing I want to point out here is the last verse, last phrase in verse 16. As they do the other scriptures. See what he's doing here? He is putting Paul's writings on the same level as the other scriptures, presumably the Old Testament scriptures. This is evidence here that we find early on in the New Testament that the apostles understood that they were writing scripture. They were writing God's word. They understood that. The wisdom was given to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the spirit was given to Paul in order to give people scripture. Jesus promised this in that upper room discourse in John 14 through 16, that the spirit would come and show them things to come and teach them all things. Why would they need that? Because they would go forth to write and continue to finish the scriptures. And thank God we have the scriptures today. They've been preserved for us. But this is evidence that Peter viewed Paul's writings as scripture, as God's word. This This is wonderful. We come to the last point now, verses 17 through 18. We want to consider how Peter highlights now the kind of activity we ought to be engaged in. The kind of activity we ought to be engaged in. As we come to the end of the letter, he says, You therefore, beloved, he keeps underscoring who they are in the eyes of Christ. They are his beloved ones, his deeply cherished ones. Knowing this beforehand, which I think is a reference to the entire letter so far, knowing all that you know beforehand, that scoffers will come, but yet God will destroy them. He will usher in a new creation. He will do away with the old creation. Knowing all of this beforehand, here's the third imperative in this text. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. He is calling them here to spiritual watchfulness and wakefulness. Take care, be on guard, watch out for the possibility of being carried away, led astray with what? The error of lawless, unprincipled people, referring to the false teachers, twisting scriptures to their own destruction. And by the way, when we consider these last verses that we were just in, The people who were twisting Paul's letters were probably twisting the sections in Paul's writings where he was referring to the freedom with which Christ has set us free. And so they heard things probably from Paul like, hey, Paul is promising freedom from the law. Romans chapter 7, freedom. Haven't you ever read Galatians? Paul's promising freedom. And they twisted it to mean freedom to sin, not freedom from sin. He says, take care. Friends, God calls you in his love and care of you to take seasons in your life to do spiritual inventory to see if you are being carried away with anything that's unbiblical. God calls you to spiritual watchfulness, to spiritual self-examination, 
to seriously go before God in prayer and say, Lord, is there any area of my life where I am maybe twisting your word, believing something false about your word, being led astray, being carried away with some error? Lord, show me. That is not a prayer that God is indifferent to. That is not a prayer that, that, he looks, that he hears and says, I'm not going to answer that prayer. He loves his people. He sent his son to purchase his people. He sent his spirit to indwell his people. And if his people are then returning back to him and saying, Lord, show me as I take care, as I ensure and seek to make sure that I'm not carried away with the air of all those people, show me if I'm being carried away in anything. Friends, it's so easy to be carried away, isn't it? So easy to be carried away. You don't have to do anything. That's, that's, the, that, that, that's, how, that's how people are carried away. Do nothing, and you'll be carried away. Be lazy, you'll be carried away. He says the possibility at the end of verse 17 is there to lose or throw away or fall from your own stability. Your own steadfastness. Now, I believe this is a, uh, uh, this is a clear reference to apostasy. It's a real possibility that those who name the name of Christ for a year, two years, three years, ten years down the road, thirty years down the road, thirty years after they profess Christ, to fall away and to lose their stability that they had for those thirty years. That doesn't mean that they were ever Christians and fell away from the grace and omnipotence of God. It just means that they claimed to be believers for a long time. But there was never any true regeneration. There was outward reformation, but not inward regeneration. Now people say, well, don't verses like this chip away at our assurance? No, friends, these verses feed our assurance. When you find yourself questioning yourself, wanting to make sure that your faith is real, that your repentance is genuine, when you are questioning, Lord, search my heart, know me, I want to make sure I'm truly among your elect, that doesn't take away from your assurance, that enhances your assurance, that shows that you want to be his, that's fruit in itself, but don't end there, continue to pray and seek and ask and knock to confirm your calling and election. That's the kind of activity we ought to be engaged in. Self-watchfulness, spiritual inventory, taking care that we're not being carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. That's the negative side of it. The positive side of it is in verse 18. We ask, how do we make sure that we're not carried away? How do we make sure that we're mature people, not tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about, like Ephesians 4 says, by every wind of doctrine that comes our way. How do we do this? Verse 18 gives us the answer. But grow. Grow. The idea there is to expand the sphere, to expand. Grow in grace. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow. Make sure you're advancing in the Christian life. Make sure you're maturing in the Christian life. How do you do that? Primarily by the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can't grow where there's no knowledge. You can't grow where you are ignorant. 
A seed in order to grow, a plant in order to grow, needs water. And in your case, if you were to grow and mature and bear fruit and blossom, you need the water of the knowledge of Christ in your life. And yet most of you, or perhaps many of you, some of you, I don't know all of you on a, on a deeply, deeply, deeply personal level, some of you, if you're honest with yourself, you are starving yourself spiritually of the water of the knowledge of Christ. Could that be the reason you're not maturing the way you want to mature? Could that be the reason you're, you're quick to, to give a, a new listen to another new guru, new, new teacher on YouTube preaching this and spouting this? You need to ground yourself in the word of God, in the knowledge of Christ, so that you grow in him. That's how to ensure that you are not led astray, taken away, carried away with the error of lawless people by ensuring that you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, growing does not happen naturally. Growth comes as you abide in the vine. Thank God the word is filled with so many illustrations and word pictures. And in John 15... Jesus gives us a picture of something that is healthy and something that's growing and something that's bearing fruit. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. So how do you grow? Abide in the vine. Stay close to Christ. Stay close to prayer. Stay close to his word. Stay close in the fellowship of the local church. Stay close in worship. Stay close to him and there will be growth. There will be maturity. And he ends with this glorious title, our Lord and Savior, our master and rescuer. That's who he is. He came to be the Lord of those he saves. He came to be the master of those he redeems and delivers from sin. And he ends with this. To him, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. There's a few places in the Bible where glory is ascribed directly to Jesus Christ, and this is one of them. And whenever you see glory being given to Jesus Christ, that is a verse that is dripping with the deity of Christ. Because God, as he established so long ago in the book of Isaiah, is a God who says, I share my glory with no one. And yet we see in the New Testament, God sharing his glory with his son. Is he another God? Lowercase g, as the Jehovah's Witnesses say? No. Is he this elevated angel, created being? No. He is one essence with the Father. Distinct from the Father in his personhood, yes, but sharing the same essence as the Father. Fully God, fully man. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation 7, 9, after this, John looks and he sees this multitude that no one can number. And what are they crying out? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a verse that teaches us very clearly that Jesus Christ is not just our Lord. He is not just our Savior. He is our God. He is our God, and all glory be to Christ. Glory to him for his work, 
his inherent, in, inherent glory as the Son of God, his inherent beauty. For that, he deserves glory. His obedience. He is the eternal God. He is the obedient last Adam, as 1 Corinthians 15 calls him, and therefore he is worthy of glory and worship and honor. As we close, I'm here to tell you today that salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. We will behold his face in righteousness. The day is coming when we will awake and be satisfied in his likeness and with his likeness. As Revelation 7 tells us, the everlasting day is coming when our enthroned king will shelter us with his very own presence. We shall not hunger anymore. We will not thirst anymore. We will no longer have the sun striking us. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd. He will guide us to springs of living water. In that day, God will wipe away every tear from every eye of every one of his people. In that day, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. Imagine that sight. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. We're also told in that glorious passage, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all God's holy mountain for the earth in that day. That day that we're waiting for shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. For as God says in Isaiah 65, 17, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. That's the truth. And until then, we don't have to wait in misery. We don't have to wait in discouragement and despondency, and in hopelessness, we wait with eager longing. We groan inwardly, yes, with the rest of creation, yearning for this day, but we groan with joy. We groan with hope. People say they hate waiting because there's nothing they can do to help or change the situation, but that's not the case with us. There is something we can do. There is something we're called to do. We're called to hasten the day to take the gospel to, have the, to those who have yet to hear. There's people in your lives every day that may have heard of church, they may have heard of the Bible, but I guarantee you they have not heard the gospel. This gospel of the kingdom, Jesus said, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. God will usher in that day in accordance with his perfect timing, just as he has decreed and determined long ago, but that doesn't mean he doesn't work through his people praying that his kingdom would come. People also say that they hate waiting because they don't know the outcome. But that's not the case with us. We know how it all ends. There's no uncertainty about it. God has graciously given us his word to effectively communicate his plan to make all things new. We may not know the day or the hour, but we can rest in knowing that the God who never lies will execute his sovereign plan with flawless execution. And people say that they hate waiting because they want things to happen according to their timetable. 
but we ought not to live with our timetable in mind. We're to count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Do you realize this morning that there are brothers and sisters that you will spend eternity with who have yet to hear the Savior's voice calling them out of darkness into his marvelous light? There are family members out there. I'm talking about the family of God, family members in the kingdom of Christ who have not heard the gospel and yet you will spend eternity with them. And they will be every bit reconciled as you are in eternity. They're out there. We're called to reach them. So open your mouth boldly for the gospel. Doesn't mean be arrogant, abrasive. It just means be open, honest, tell them the whole truth. And so we wait joyfully because although we're not in control, we know him who is in control. And so in the meantime, as you wait, beloved, as you wait, remember the kind of people you ought to be known as. Holy, godly, hopeful, actively engaged in the great commission to bring the gospel to the lost in order to hasten the day of Christ's return. Remember the kind of world you ought to be longing for. A new world where the former things are no longer remembered. The things pertaining to sin and death. A world where righteousness dwells forever and flourishes forever. Remember the kind of diligence you ought to be given to. Making every effort to be found by our coming king without spot or blemish. Doing everything you can with all the resources God has given you for life and godliness. To make sure that you're at peace with him and at peace within when he returns. And remember the kind of thinking you ought to be armed with. Instead of uh, growing weary and discouraged as you wait for that day, you are to regard our Lord's patience as salvation. So long as he remains at the right hand of his Father, that's another day to share the gospel. That's another day to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling and to ensure that you are walking in the joy of your salvation and enjoying the sweetness of all the benefits of that salvation. And finally, remember the kind of activity that you ought to be engaged in. As a professing believer who has not yet reached the finish line, you're to take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people to the point of losing your own stability. It's easy to drift and it's easy to be carried away. It's easy to be led astray because you don't have to do anything. Just do nothing and you'll be carried away. But as a Christian, God calls you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. That's the message of 2 Peter. Let's stand and pray.